I suppose I was seven, maybe eight years of age, growing up in Regina. And my dad uh, was on a business trip in northern Saskatchewan. And when he came home from that business trip, he gave me a rock. And it turns out that one of the things he did is he toured a gold mine when he was in northern Saskatchewan. And in this rock that he gave me, there were all kinds of streaks of gold in the rock, veins of gold. And I remember getting quite excited. I was really young, but I knew that gold seemed to be something everybody really wanted. My excitement was extremely short-lived because what he said to me is, he said, Scott, this is fool's gold. This is iron pyrite. And to the untrained eye, it looks like real gold. It looks like there's veins of gold in the rock, but it's actually not worth anything. How do you tell the difference between 24 karat gold and fool's gold. Well, I looked online and apparently there's a scratch test. There's a weight test. There's a magnetic test. There's a water test. There's a chemical test. There's a spectro spectrometer test. But they said the test is only as good as the person performing it. And I really wanted that pyrite, that fool's gold to be legit but it wasn't. And today we're going to talk about legit. So if you have your Bible, turn with me on your hard copy or on your device to first John chapter two, we're in the midst of this series of messages moving expositionally through the book of first John. As you're turning, let me say I've had some help with this series as I do to one extent or another in every series I do. Some elements courtesy of Mark Driscoll, some from David Veerman, some from Glenn Barker. And as we read from this passage of scripture, beginning in verse 17, I remind you that this is the word of the Lord. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going shows that none of them belong to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the antichrist. He denies the father and the son. No one who denies the son has the father. Whoever acknowledges the son has the father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the son and in the father. And this is what he promised us. 
even eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from me remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it was taught you remain in him. And so he begins in verse 18 with this very familiar phrasing that we have seen repeatedly in the first four messages. And we're going to see in the weeks to come a few times. He says, dear children, very important to keep this in mind. There's a reason he keeps repeating this. He's saying, don't miss this. I'm going to keep reminding you and reminding you and reminding you that God loves you, that I love you, that I'm in your corner, that I'm cheering for you, that God has your back and he has your best interests in mind. And we often forget these fundamental things. And so John, Jesus, best friend says, remember these things, my dear children. And because you are my dear children, I need to warn you about something really serious in the first chapter, almost two chapters of the book of first John. He says there are some foundational things in a sense that are sort of watermarks or tests, which God knows and indicates to him that someone has truly surrendered their life to him, that they are one with the father. And as I'm going to say, and I'm going to say this repeatedly, this is not our call. It's not my call. That's for sure. It's God's call and God's call alone. But by mentioning these things, these things that we'll refer back to later in the first chapter and a half of this book, John is indirectly at that point confronting opponents. He's saying, saying, for example, in the first four verses of chapter one, and it, and it goes on from there. And he's confronting these people indirectly in the first chapter and a half and saying they have failed these tests of healthy discipleship. But now in this passage, beginning in the part that we read today, he shifts this. And he is bringing out the big guns at this point. And he confronts very directly. And he says, there are some antichrists among you. This is serious stuff. These are people who are in direct opposition to Jesus Christ. These are people, it says, I think it's in verse 27 there, who are deliberately trying to lead you astray. And so in verse 18, he is saying, and in the other, the other New Testament writers would say this, they would say the whole period beginning with the first coming of Christ. And then when he returns again, one day, these are the last days until Jesus second coming. And it's hard for us to understand this because we're so fixed in time. And so we've been waiting for about 2000 years for the return of Christ. We've been longing for his coming. And I find often the older I get, the more I long for his coming, the more I long for heaven. And so we're waiting. 
I would say even impatiently for the coming of Christ. And if you know anything about church history, every generation since Jesus, before he rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the father, every generation in church history has been more or less convinced that he's coming back during their lifetime. If you study church history, you'll see this. Every one of us longing for his coming. Every one of us believing he's coming in our lifetime. Bear in mind, and it's hard for us to get our head around this. God created time. God is above time, and yet God is in time. It says in the scripture that a thousand years for God is like a day or like a watch in the night, like three or four hours. And it's just a way of saying he, he created, he's above it. He was, he's always been, he is uncreated. And so a couple thousand years to, uh, to him is just like, like that. And so they were living in the last days in that sense. And so are we. And Jesus said, and many people forget this. No one knows, but the father when Jesus will return in verse 19, during this interim time of the last days and in an increasing sense before Jesus comes back, he warns that there will be antichrists that come people that will actively try to push Christ aside that will actively try to lead you astray. And then the world as it ends, as we know it prior to this in the book of revelation, and he references it here, the antichrist will come one who will stand above all the rest, one who will want to be worshiped. And the warning at this point by John is that some of these antichrists are hanging out with the legit believers. So just like 24 karat gold and fool's gold, how do you tell the difference between the two? Because many times they will use language that sounds very warming to us, welcoming to us. They will even claim to be Christians. And then to some degree, they might be in community with you. They might even be people, you know, maybe even people you love or friends. And I remind you again, I've said it once, I'm going to say it two or three times at least, that this is God's call. We don't ultimately decide if someone's in right relationship with him. He does, not our call, it's God's call. But this will give rise to questions that you'll hear people bring out once in a while, like, well, can people lose their salvation? And we study these, or we create rather these theological systems that I've one degree or another read about most or all of them. And it's our way in, and, and it's a good thing in some ways because it's our way of trying to understand it all. And it's good to study. It's good to learn. It's good to know biblical theology. But at the heart of this is this, burning desire for us to figure it all out. And we can't. Okay. There's one thing I know is we can't totally. And all of these theological systems, I don't care which one, they can all be attacked when it comes to issues like this. And so, for example, when this question comes up, whether you're a Calvinist, Arminius, Wesleyan, whatever, 
If you can work your way out of your salvation, does that mean you can work your way into your salvation? And when that question is asked, there is no answer. Because of course we can't. All through this series, all through the texts we've studied, all through scripture, we have shown again and again, we can't. All of scripture does. For example, last week in verse 12, it says, John writes and he says, I'm writing this to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Not my name, not your name. There's no other name other than his name. And this is one of the big, if not the big idea through this whole book, the real Jesus, that Jesus and Jesus alone and his activity on our behalf, his sacrifice on our behalf is the reason we can and we will be forgiven if we ask for that. So after you surrender your life to him, when you come to this point where you say, I have done sinful things that scripture talks about. There's no excuse. It's not somebody else's fault. I did it. And I acknowledge that. And I understand clearly I'm, I'm hopelessly lost. One of the songs we talked about how great saying rather how great a chasm there's this impenetrable chasm between ourselves and holy God. And we understand this. We ask for forgiveness based on what Jesus did exclusively for us. And his grace cleanses us and forgives us. And we receive this free gift and he has done all the work. We've done nothing and relationship launches with him and we walk with him and he walks with us. And this is the goal. And I understand there's times when legit followers of the real Jesus are not healthy in their relationship with him. Again, I remind you God's call, not my call, not your call. And the people in this passage are not like this. These are antichrists. They were never really sincere, surrendered followers of the real Jesus in verse 18, 19 in there, not on team Jesus. And so a true follower walks back if they've wandered out of bounds and it's our call to pray for them and to come alongside them, to admonish them when they need it and to pray for them. Peter is a classic example of this. There's a couple of different times in his life. So let me tell you a little bit very quickly about him. In one of these instances, Jesus says, Peter, you are a leader among leaders on this rock. I will build my church. He's the spokesperson basically for the group. He's one of the inner three of the inner 12 of Jesus. But later in Galatians chapter two, as the early church is forming, Jesus has gone to the cross. He's rose from the dead. He's ascended to the right hand of the father. The spirit has come 40 days later, 50 days later, the church is exploding in growth. And in Galatians chapter two, Peter steps radically out of bounds and he won't eat, won't interact with the Gentile believers. These are people who are card carrying followers of Jesus, but they're not Jews. 
And Peter feels pressured by what's called the Judaizers. Judaizers are people that go, hey, there's something pretty cool about this Jesus guy. I could get, I could get together with him. But we also want to marry together with that a bunch of our laws and a bunch of our rules. Because it can't be just Jesus. It's got to be Jesus plus these rules and these laws. And so they would say, we have to ostracize these Gentiles and we got to not hang out with them. And Peter feels peer pressure from these guys and he does it. And he goes back temporarily to a time like he was what he was like as a Jew prior to following Christ. And in the same chapter, Paul rebukes him and Peter smartens up and gets back with the program and understands and signs off on the fact that they're every bit as much a follower of the real Jesus as he is. And so there's this idea that you often hear me talk about of us being progressing pilgrims. We're not perfect. God sees us positionally as holy, and yet we're also in the process of becoming more like Christ. And so we're progressing, we're, pro, we're progressing pilgrims, not perfect. The people being talked about in this passage are not doing this. They're in direct opposition to Christ and they're not doing it accidentally. John says they're not doing it because they're naive and they don't know an anti Christ type person might use the same kind of language that we use, but we'll have different definitions for it. But they believe and they want you to believe things that are in direct contrast to scripture, um, in direct contrast to what we know who Jesus is. That's why it says in verse 26, they will uh, are actively trying to lead you astray. And so in conversation with them, the idea that God as scripture teaches is one essence in three distinct co-equal persons. They'll go, nah, this idea from scripture of Trinity. Nah, that Jesus is the God man as scripture clearly teaches. Nah, I can't understand it. So it can't be true. No, they all say, Jesus, I believe, is a created being. They might say something like that. Because God the Father had a relationship with Mary. And they get their own planet. This is what the Mormons will say to you. And Jesus is a man who became God. In fact, all men can become gods. And Jesus is the half-brother to Lucifer. And they are denying the orthodox beliefs that all legit followers of Jesus have signed off on all through the ages. And it's taught all through scripture. And so we're not talking here at all about other sincere Bible believing followers of Christ, say here in Lethbridge. And there's a number of good churches and godly people in this town. So you could go to the Evangelical Free Church or Park Meadows Baptist or the West Side Community Church or College Drive, to name a few. And what you'll discover, if you don't know this already, is they're going to have some different convictions on what are debatable issues. Some people would call these secondary issues where there's some ambivalence in scripture. My friend, Bob pastor up at Coleek and I, um, Coleek and I, we will often talk and, you know, other people talk about this, about closed fisted issues and open handed issues. 
And so we would sign off with these believers at these other churches on the closed fist things. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ and we bless them and we can pray with them and we can worship the real Jesus with them. And some of the debatable issues are the fact that Jesus, for example, is coming back. This is a closed fist issue. Absolutely clear in scripture. Exactly when and what that's going to look like is open fisted. Anybody that says to you, they have that all figured out. Do not believe them. Because only the father knows when Jesus is coming back. So how do we recognize the antichrist? It says in verse 20, when we're followers of Christ, we are anointed with the Holy spirit. We are told this as well. For example, in first Corinthians 12, 13, where it says we are baptized by one spirit, meaning the Holy spirit into one body. The Holy Spirit, we are told in the gospel of John, also written by Jesus' best friend on the life of Jesus. In the gospel of John, we are told that the Holy Spirit will point us to truth. That he will convict us of sin. That he will point us to the real Jesus. And so in verse 21, it says in our text, the spirit will begin to show us the lies of the antichrist among us the antichrist followers. And I'll give you a sneak peek into what we'll talk about in a couple weeks time or so in verse eight of chapter three, it says the reason the son of man, the son of God came was to destroy, destroy the works of Satan, of the devil, of the evil one. He didn't come to ruffle Brent Trask was saying this to me the other day. He didn't, he didn't come to ruffle the feathers of Satan. He didn't come to slightly disrupt him. He didn't come to give him a little injury. He came to destroy the works of the evil one. And so we can help ask the spirit of God to help us understand this stuff and where we need to oppose it. So what happens is sometimes, and this is more rare, more often, more rare. He, he will just supernaturally, the spirit of God, as we pray and say, help us, he'll just supernaturally show us where the lie is. And it'll just immediately come out. The person is saying, you know, well, did the resurrection, and they're not asking a legitimate question. They're not searching, curious, nothing like that. They'll say something like, you know, did the resurrection really happen or did Jesus just swoon? Or maybe the disciples stole his body. And I don't think he really, he didn't die on the cross and rise from the dead. They're not asking questions to learn or to understand or that virgin birth thing. I don't think that really happened or that question. I don't believe these miracles or I don't believe in the inerrancy or the accuracy of scripture. I think it's full of myths. I think, you know, we have to be really selective in the things that we look at in scripture. And I don't think it's all true. One of the things I was taught about how to do hermeneutics, which is the way you study scripture and properly interpret it. And you've heard me say this before. The main things are the clear things and the clear things are the main things. The main things are the clear things and the clear things are the main things. Keep that in mind as you're looking and studying scripture. What are the things that godly, legit 
followers of the real Jesus have always believed. And so the spirit of God might give you a supernatural word of knowledge, uh, a prophetic word, and you'll just go, I'm speaking this word because I see the air. Boom. But more often, the spirit will give you a little tug inside you, in your spirit. And he will lead you to the scripture. And as this person is talking or whatever it is they're doing, you'll see it's like they're sharing about 96, 97% of the truth, which is what Satan tried to do with Jesus when he was tempting him. But then at one crucial point, they just twist it and step away from scripture. And they are denying these orthodox fundamental truths. Verses 22 to 24 says a telltale sign of these antichrists is they will try to lie and misrepresent who Jesus Christ is. It will always go to that. They will try to lie and misrepresent who Jesus Christ is. Remember last week, we talked about the fact that Satan is the father of lies. He's much, much better at it than we are. And he wants to spout the biggest of lies. And some of the lies he likes to spout is, oh, all of scripture doesn't point to Jesus. He was just a man like you. Or, you know, now nah, he failed. This stuff about him being without sin, man filled, the, the spirit filled God, man. Now nah, that's not true. He didn't, he didn't do that. He sinned or he, nah, he didn't rise from the dead. Those 500 people that sacrificed their life and were tortured to death in most instances, they were all lying to you. That didn't really happen. You can't believe that stuff. You can't believe anything in history. Let's rewrite all of history to make it look like the way we want it to look. Or he is just God. And so he, he doesn't understand you. He doesn't understand the temptations you're going through. He can't relate to you on any level. Or he was a man, but he was, you know, he wasn't God. He was just a moral man, or he was a great teacher, or he was just one of many gods. Verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar? Who is the liar? It's any, it is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the antichrist denying the father and the son. No one who denies the son has the father. Whoever acknowledges the son has the father also. This is serious stuff. And you know, people don't like lines in the sand. This is a line in the sand. Okay. Who is the liar? Verses 24 and 25, he says, make sure this stuff remains in you because God has promised you eternal life. Now, maybe some of you are nervous as I'm saying this because you're going, I've, well, you know, I've, I've launched a relationship with Jesus. I've acknowledged my sin. I've asked him to forgive me, to be my savior. I understand I did not deserve this. I didn't merit this. Sometimes we'll say that I didn't earn it. It's a gift that he gave to me by his sacrificial grace. And now I'm trusting him and I've surrendered my life to him the best way I know how to lead my life, to be the pace setter for my life. What will my day to day life look like now? 
Remember at the beginning of this little talk, I said we would consider quickly some of the things we've already talked about through this series. So let me just quickly bounce through a few of the little scriptures we looked at in chapter one in the first half of chapter two. It says in verse five, chapter one, that God is light and in him there is no darkness. So contrary to everything you're going to hear out in the world, God, you know, where God is put in one circle and there he is seen as light, but also darkness. And this is the lie you see in the agenda that's taught all the time in the secular realm. Because they have an agenda. No, no. There's two circles, it says in verse 5. And God is light. And then there's darkness over here. And so then he says in verse 6 that I will walk with him in the light. And so I'll be on the journey with him. This is one of the signs that you're a legit follower of Jesus. It says then in verse 9. And this is a beautiful verse that every one of us should memorize. So we instantly have it at our fingertips, if we confess our sin. In other words, we may not choose to do it. If I humble myself, I don't blame anybody else. I acknowledge what I've done. If we confess our sins, he, not me, there's nothing I can do about it. He, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. We can trust him and he is a just God and he never flakes out on us, never too tired, never too distracted. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when I sincerely confess, Jesus does all the work, all the work. He forgives me. He removes the shame. He removes the guilt. Memorize that verse if you haven't already. Chapter 2, verse 3. I've come to know him, so I've let him shape my life. And over time, my values will begin to transform. I'll begin to reflect Jesus more and more as I obey him and as I follow him. Verse six, I will keep walking on the same path with him. And I might stumble once in a while, like we talked about, like Peter did. But I'll come back. Okay. Verse nine in chapter says, chapter two, a real follower of the real Jesus does not hate people. Even people that have wronged me and with Jesus help, I forgive them. I love them even when they absolutely do not deserve it. And I will let Jesus, the righteous judge whose motives are pure. I'll let him right the wrongs. And then in verse 12 of chapter two, which we read earlier, I rest in the fact I cling to the fact that I am forgiven on account of the name above all names, the real Jesus and friends. It is personal. It is renewing. It is giving and it is legit. Let's pray. So, Father, as we're about to leave, how grateful we are that you sent the Lord Jesus. And soon we'll we'll enter into the season of Lent, which helps us build up to in this healthy anticipation of Jesus going up to Jerusalem. When everybody said, don't go, don't go. We think they're going to kill you. And you knew they were going to kill you, but you went anyway because you loved us. 
because you were going to die for us on the cross, because you knew you would rise from the dead, because you knew every one of us is absolutely hopelessly lost without you. And for all of these things, as we celebrated in communion, we praise you. We thank you. And Lord, as we go now, we thank you that you've given us the spirit to help us see truth. You allow us then every day to be filled with the spirit so we can walk and and, and reflect Jesus well. And so we pray and we do these things now in Jesus precious name. We pray. Amen. So up here to the right, my right, your left are Dennis and Sharon Barber. Um, These are leaders in our church. They love to pray for people. So if you'd like someone to pray with you, they'd be honored to do that. Just make your way up there. God bless.